You're listening to Cross Section, the podcast of the Summit View Church of Christ. Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lifts his As we continue in the, our study of the book of Acts, this morning we'll be in Acts chapter 15. There was an argument in the early church. Can you imagine? Seems like whenever you get two or more people together, there's going to be an argument eventually, right? Uh, and even if they're Christians, they still disagree sometimes. They might have a little dispute or, or get frustrated with each other. But the issue is not whether you have an argument, right? But how you deal with that argument. How do you, how do you work through it? This was really early in church history. It was only maybe 15, 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus and the start of the church. So we think probably around the year 48 or 49, and this is how it begins. Let's, let's begin, begin in uh, Acts 15 and verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. A little background here. This was a long time ago and far away, so a little explanation is helpful Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. The biggest was Rome. The second biggest was Alexandria in Egypt. Antioch was third. And Acts chapter 11 told us a little bit about the church in Antioch. It was very active in sharing the good news of Jesus with Gentiles, with non-Jews. So it began as a Jewish church, but it quickly started to spread to Gentiles. And in fact, in Acts 13, we're told that it's the Antioch church that sends Barnabas and Paul out as missionaries to the Gentiles. And now Barnabas and Paul have finished their journey. They've planted some churches among the Gentiles, and they have returned to Antioch to report on their work, and their work went very well. Judea was uh, southern Israel, the region right around Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the largest and most important city in that region, a little way south of Antioch. And it was a heavily Jewish area, and it was the area where the church first began, of course, uh, right in Jerusalem in the middle of Judea. So here's the problem. Some believers from Judea travel to Antioch and start teaching that if you're a Gentile, you have to become a Jew to be saved. That's just how it is. And if you're male, then the sign that you've become a Jew is circumcision, as taught in the law of Moses. And this sort of makes sense if you think about it. Since the time of Abraham, if you were a man who shared in the promises of God, the, the sign that you shared in God's promises was circumcision. And Jesus himself was a Jew, and the Bible says he was circumcised, just like any you know, Jewish baby boy. And so naturally, if you follow Jesus, you have to be a Jew too, right? That apparently is what these people were teaching. But Paul and Barnabas disagree sharply, and an argument ensues there in the church in Antioch, a church argument right here in the Bible. Paul and Barnabas argue because they have seen hundreds, maybe thousands of Gentiles become Christians without first becoming Jews. 
And so they strongly oppose any teaching that says that Gentiles have to become Jews to be saved. Now, when you have an argument with your best friend or with your spouse, I've heard that can happen, with your brothers and sisters in the church, there are a few ways you can deal with it. You can avoid the issue and pretend it just doesn't exist. That will probably do harm to your relationship over time. You can avoid the other person so that you don't argue. That will definitely harm your relationship over time. Or you can work on the issue because the relationship is important to you. And that's what the church in Antioch does. They work on this issue. The church appoints Paul and Barnabas with some others to travel south to Jerusalem to bring this issue before the apostles and the elders there in Jerusalem. Not because the Jerusalem church was in charge of all the other churches. We don't get that indication in Scripture at all. But because this teaching had come from their region. It started there, so they go there to address it. And probably also because the apostles did have special authority as the official communicators of the teachings of Jesus chosen and commissioned by Jesus himself. And so they're going to go and consult with the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem about this issue. Now, this is a major <clears throat> disagreement. There's a lot that can go wrong here and do harm to the church. But at this point, we begin to see a lot of things go right. I'm going to say that there are seven things the church does right. Because seven is a good biblical number. You might be able to find more, and that's great. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to go with seven today. First thing that goes right, first thing the church does right, they confront the problem. They confront the problem. The Antioch church doesn't run away from it. They don't pretend like everything is okay. They courageously confront the problem. Their relationship with other believers, both the Gentiles in their church and elsewhere, and also all those Jewish believers in Judea, is important to them. And so they want to get this conflict fixed so that it won't break down their relationship. And their relationship with God is important, too. They want to make sure that they and the Jerusalem church are, doing, are, are all doing and teaching what God wants them to do and teach. The second thing they do well is they open up lines of communication. They open lines of communication. The Antioch church, offended by this new teaching, disagreeing with it, does not get on social media and post cruel memes about the bad church in Jerusalem. They don't spread slander or gossip about their brothers and sisters in Christ. They establish communication with them so that they can work out this conflict. So the second thing they do, right, they open lines of communication. In marital and premarital counseling, one of the things the counselor most often works on, usually spends a lot of time on, is communication. Uh, communication between the, the, the husband and wife or the, uh, uh, the, the intended husband and wife. So he'll work with them or she'll work with them on how to confront a tough issue, how to talk about it, how to listen to the other person because that's hard to do when, when you're having a, a difficulties in communication. It's hard to, hard to listen when you're stressed or when you're angry. So basically, they'll work on how to argue without being rude to the other person, how to argue kindly. And it's not easy. Any, married, any couple who's been married 30 years or more can tell you it takes a lot of courage and a lot of humility to, uh, to be able to argue wisely and productively. And the same is true when there's a conflict in the church. 
It takes a lot of courage to confront a tense issue and a lot of humility to sit down and talk about it. And that's what the church does when Paul and Barnabas arrive from Antioch into Jerusalem. So let's continue at verse 4. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, and we'll pause there and come back to it in a second. When Paul and Barnabas arrive in Jerusalem, it's not long before that argument comes up again. Some believers who were Pharisees bring it up. Pharisees, you may remember from the gospel accounts of Jesus' ministry, he interacted with them quite a bit. Pharisees were a Jewish group that stressed holiness, purity, and obeying God's commands. And that's good. But sometimes they became so obsessed with holiness as they defined it that they lost sight of holiness as God defines it. That's why they often come into conflict with Jesus. To them, Gentiles in the church not becoming Jews, must have sounded like rampant unholiness. I mean, Gentiles worshipped idols. That's not okay in the church. Gentiles ate unclean foods. Gentiles indulged in all sorts of immorality, and so on. They did not obey God's commands. But Jews did. And so how could a person be saved without becoming a Jew? The root of our faith is that Jesus died for us to reconcile us to God. But to be reconciled to God, we have to turn away from our life of sin. Otherwise, we're insulting God by continually defying His commands. Isn't that what the Gentiles did? And so that dispute comes up again. And the Jerusalem church again does something right. This is number three, uh, if you're uh, following along in the notes. They talk about it. They talk about it. Verse 6 says, The apostles and elders met to consider this question. They got together to talk about it. And verse 7 says, After much discussion, which sounds like there was some pretty healthy debate going. If there was no debate, you know, then you wouldn't need any discussion. You just talk about it, you'd all agree, you'd be done. And if there was much discussion, there was probably some good Patient, careful listening going on. The apostles and elders listened to both sides. Boy, that can take a long time to hear somebody out, especially when you disagree with them. But it's important because it lets parties on both sides know you care. You may not agree with one side or the other, but you're willing to listen before you come to a decision. I struggle with that. Maybe you do too. That's hard. The apostles and elders apparently listened for a while. And then after much discussion, the Apostle Peter speaks up. Verse 7. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving, them, by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. 
He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. After all the discussion, Peter speaks up. And what Peter does is focus the conversation around God. God has, had shared the gospel with Gentiles through Peter. Peter's referring back to the story of Cornelius that we read a few weeks ago out of chapter 10. God had given them the Holy Spirit without their having to first become Jews. In fact, they hadn't even been, been baptized yet. And God gave them the Holy Spirit. That's about the only time that happens uh, in Scripture or nearly. God purified their hearts by faith. God made them pure without them becoming Jews first. Yes, Gentiles come from a life of sin. No one disagreed with that. But God purifies them, not by their following the law of Moses, but by their faith in Jesus. And then their lives change or transformed as they grow closer to God. And then Peter asks, why are you making trouble with God? Why are you testing God by requiring the Gentiles to do what God doesn't require them to do? God doesn't require them to follow the law of Moses. That's hard even for us Jews to do. Why are we trying to make them do it? It's through the grace of our Lord Jesus, not through following the Jewish law, that both Jews and Gentiles are saved, Peter says. And, of course, it's as wrong to require someone to do what God does not require them to do as it is to permit them to do what God does not permit them to do. So Peter focuses the conversation around God. Look at what God has done. And then Peter, uh, Paul and Barnabas do the same. Verse 12. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. So Paul and Barnabas tell the group there in the Jerusalem church about all the miracles God performed through them as they were sharing the gospel with Gentiles. We read about a few of these in Acts 13 and 14. Like Peter, they focused the conversation around God. And then James speaks up. This is James, the brother of Jesus. He became an elder in the, the church in Jerusalem and was a great leader there for many years. Verse 13. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, Listen to me. Simon, talking about Peter, that was the name Peter's parents gave him. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath." Just like Peter and just like Barnabas and Paul, James focuses the conversation around God. 
specifically around, around what God had said in the Scriptures. God had foretold in the book of Amos that he would rebuild David's tent, which is Israel. He's referring to Israel. In order that through Israel he might reach the rest of mankind, all the Gentiles, so that they would seek the Lord and bear his name. And now God was reaching out to Gentiles through Israel by means of Jesus, who was Jewish, who was from Israel, and through his church, which started out Jewish, to bring the whole world to be reconciled to God. God had foretold that he would do this, and now James says, God has done it. And so James says, if this is what God has done, if this is what God said he would do, now he's fulfilling it. He thinks the church should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. If God wants Gentiles to be reconciled to himself, then make it easier for them, not harder. And so the fourth thing the church does right as it deals with this conflict, number four in your notes, they diligently seek the will of God. They diligently seek the will of God. They ask, what has God done? And Peter reports on that, and Paul and Barnabas report on that, James does a little bit. And they ask, what do the scriptures say? And James talks about that for a while. And then number five, they submit to God's will. Once they see what God desires, once they understand what he's done, they make the decision to do what God desires and not make it difficult to turn to God. Which means they will not require the Gentiles to obey the law of Moses, which God intended only for Jews. And so the only things they ask the Gentiles to do as they become Christians are things that God has always required of all people everywhere when they follow him. Four requirements that have roots way back in the time before the law of Moses, way back in the time of Abraham, ancestor of Moses and of Israel, and even back to the time of Noah, who was an ancestor of Abraham. So those four things. First, don't eat food associated with idols. That's a way of saying don't be involved in worshiping idols because people who worship idols typically would sacrifice an animal to to their God and then eat that food that they thought was blessed by their God. So don't eat food associated with idols. Just don't have anything to do with idolatry. This instruction is rooted in the foundational belief that there is only one God, something that all of God's people throughout time have, have understood. There is only one God. And next, stay away from sexual immorality. This command is rooted way back in Genesis 2, one of the very earliest stories in Scripture, where God created the man and the woman and instituted marriage, which in Scripture is the only proper relationship for sexual intimacy. Stay away from sexual immorality. And then third and fourth, don't eat blood and don't eat the meat of strangled animals because it would still have the blood in it. The animal was killed in such a way as to keep the blood inside. This command is from Genesis chapter 9, where God tells Noah that it's okay to eat meat. Uh, It's okay for, God actually gives people permission to eat meat, but they must not eat meat that still has the animal's blood in it. These were all requirements that predated the law of Moses and apply to all human beings, Jew or Gentile. Other than these, there was no obligation for Gentile Christians to follow the Jewish law. They only needed to follow the parts that applied to all people, not the parts that applied only to Jews. And so then the Jerusalem church communicated their decision 
to the Antioch church. So let's pick up in verse 22 and and, uh, finish uh, the rest of this story. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from blood sacrificed to idols, uh, from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. The sixth thing that the church does well, they communicate their decision clearly. They communicate their decision clearly. They send this letter to the Antioch church to say, hey, we're sorry that some people from the church here went there and bothered you. They did not have our authorization. We were not behind this. We don't support it. Here's what we think you should do. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Notice how they submit themselves to what God wants, and they ask the church in Antioch to do the same. This is what the Holy Spirit desires. Number seven, they reaffirm their relationship. They reaffirm their relationship. They send Judas and Silas to communicate their message and to stay a while and work with the Antioch church. And the relationship between the two churches, which might have been strained by the dispute, is reaffirmed. And they also speak well of Barnabas and Paul, who were important to the church in Antioch. They'd been a big part of that church for several years. And they call them our dear friends and men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And right at the beginning of the letter, they say uh, in verse 23, the apostles and elders, your brothers. And so they call themselves brothers with the church in Antioch. So they reaffirm the relationship. And the Antioch church receives their message, receives Judas and Silas as emissaries to communicate by word of mouth what was written in the letter. And they're glad, they're encouraged. The Gentile believers and the Jewish believers are one in Christ. Gentile believers belong to God without needing to follow the law of Moses. The church worked through that issue that day, and their decision still blesses us today because today the vast majority, 99% or more, of the church worldwide is Gentile. And we don't have to become Jews. We're not burdened by having to follow the law of Moses. Yet we are one body 
with our Jewish Christian brothers and sisters. So what makes the church's conflict resolution process here in Acts 15 go so well in this situation? Well, they do those seven things, at least seven things, right. Just to go through those again briefly. Number one, they confront the problem. Number two, they open lines of communication. That's hard to do when you're stressed, when you're angry. Number three, they talk about it, which probably suggests they also listen to each other. Number four, they diligently seek the will of God. They ask, what has God done? What has God said uh, in Scripture that we need to follow and align our, our path with? Number five, they submit to God's will. Uh, they, they do obey what God has directed them to do. Number six, they communicate their decision clearly. That's easier said than done. It's hard to communicate sometimes when there's, when there's a, a difficulty in the relationship, but they're very clear about their decision. And then number seven, they reaffirm their relationship with the church in Antioch. I think we can make their conflict resolution process simpler than seven parts. I think we can boil it down to two things that the church must always do to resolve conflicts well. First, they worked to preserve their relationship with each other. That relationship was just so important to them. They put that uh, you know, as a high value in how they addressed the situation. And then second, they worked to do the will of God. They wanted to obey God, whatever they did. These are the two most important steps for Christians in resolving any conflict in any venue. Value the relationship and do God's will. It's a lot like what Jesus said are the two most important commands. Fill in the blank for me here. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and so on and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus died to reconcile us first to God and then also to one another. Our faith is not only about us getting to heaven, it's also about us rebuilding relationship with us, with each other and with the people around us. Jesus died to reconcile us to God and to one another. The most important thing the church did right in Acts 15 was to stop and ask, what does God want us to do here? That's not easy when we're upset, when we're scared, like the Pharisees were apparently scared of unholiness getting into the church. When we're offended, you hear what that church is saying about our church? But it's the most important thing we can do. What does God want us to do here? We must always do that first. And what God wants for us is to, A, show we love him by seeking his will and doing it, and B, show our love for one another by working through our conflicts courageously and humbly, working toward reconciliation. That's what the church in Antioch and the church in Jerusalem did. And their resolution of this argument is a model for us today. Now, hopefully we'll never have an argument and we will never need to put what we've learned today into practice in the context of an argument. But, you know, when you get two or more people together, usually there's going to be some sort of disagreement eventually. But even without any arguments or any disputes... Let us honor God and show our love for him and for one another by continually seeking God's will and by always doing what we can to build up our relationships with one another in the family of God. May God bless you today. Let's pray together. Father, 
we uh, have enjoyed a lot of peace in our congregation over the last uh, several years. We thank you for that, dear God. You have been uh, present with us to help us, and when we have had conflicts or arguments, you have helped us to resolve those, and we're very grateful, especially this last year and a half when so many churches have argued and fought about uh, what we should do in response to uh, the pandemic. Uh, you have given us a lot of peace. We haven't always agreed with each other, but we have found ways to be at peace. And Thank you so much for that, dear Lord. Thank you for teaching us grace and uh, compassion for one another and understanding. Thank you for Jesus who brought us peace with you and called us to peace with one another. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who lives within us, who always strives on both sides of the, the dispute to bring us back together. Lord God, help us to uh, practice and become very skilled at uh, the, uh, uh, the good work of seeking your will in everything and of seeking to benefit one another and to build our relationships strong, to reconcile uh, where there's been division or frustration, separation. Uh, Lord, help us. Help us to come back together and when we need to and, and to show our love for you in that way and our love for one another. Fill us, Lord, with a deep, deep love for one another. Fill us with a deep, deep love for you. We know, Lord, that when we keep our eyes on you and when our relationship with you is, is tight and good, that that blesses every part of our lives. Help us, dear Lord. Father, some of us here uh, today, I don't know who exactly, but you know, are in tension with someone, are frustrated with someone, or angry, or they've given up on someone, or whatever it might be. Lord, I pray that you would stir their hearts to help them do whatever is your will. Soften their hearts, Lord, to show compassion and to do what they can on their side uh, to bring about whatever reconciliation the other person might accept. Dear Lord, bless us in this way that we might be people of peace wherever we go and whatever we do. Bless your church with peace here, throughout our country, throughout the world. Thank you so much for Jesus our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.